You're listening to a special edition of Midori House, first broadcast on the 31st of December 2018 on Monocle 24. This is a special edition of Midori House, showcasing the best of our print media programme, The Stack. And today we've got a Stack episode for you that was first broadcast back in March. It was a special edition from the Monocle Media Summit 2018. Let's look back and listen back and enjoy. On Monday, Monocle hosted its second annual media summit here in London. Among the speakers were luminaries from across the world of print, from broadsheet CEOs to magazine editors, and we bring you the best bits of our discussions with them today on The Stack. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis. I'm Tom Edwards. Now, Monocle's annual media summit gathered together some of the best minds in every sector of the industry to try to figure out what media really looks like now, what it's going to look like, and how we can best prepare for the future. Monocle's editor-in-chief and CEO, Tyler Brule, joins me now. Tyler, looking back, the second, of course, annual iteration. How was it for you? It was very good for me. It's such a long time ago. Um, (laughs) It was our second venture out. And it's funny to have a conversation about it now because there's been sort of the one or two postmortems that we've conducted. And of course, there's always room for improvement. And and one interesting thing for people listening, we're actually doing uh, two smaller editions of it as well. So if you're catching up right now over the weekend, we will be doing a small installment in Los Angeles uh, on Monday. And then we'll be doing the same thing in, in New York, much more slimmed down, only a 25, 30 minute discussion, but great guests and picking up a number of I think, similar themes. And we've tried to to bring in various people, I think, who echo a couple of things that we've heard. Midweek, it was interesting to look at uh, WPP's results because I think some of the discussion foreshadowed a little bit of what we're hearing. And and one thing is we saw that, you know, WPP has been warning that, uh, you know, belts are being tightened by major brands when it comes to advertising. And of course, a big player like a WPP really relies on a lot of multinationals. And so I thought when we, we heard from Patrick Burgoyne, the editor of Creative Review, and he sort of really put the nail in in the coffin. I think it was interesting where he just said, programmatic is dead. He said it just has not happened. And and Andrew, our editor, picked up on the point, you know, the notion of of adjacencies not working beside ads. And that was interesting because then on the other side, you had Penny talking about it's so important and brands are so focused on wanting to be in the right environment. And so when it is hand-delivered and you've got people agonizing over the pacing of a magazine, that's incredibly important. And in a little bit sort of behind all of that, of course, we've heard that companies like the likes of Burberry are moving back a lot of their their spend towards print. I was referencing a big Swiss bank that is almost cutting all of their digital. So I think we delivered on Monday, I think, a series of different views. And that's also, I think, interesting to be talking about this sort of five or six days later, is that I think also the feedback from a lot of the delegates as well, just people say, I really sort of scratched my head a little bit because what was delivered on Monday is not an opposite view, but it was just stepping outside, I think, the mainstream narrative that you hear from so many other places. Uh, well, we're going to hear from Penny and Patrick a little uh, later. I wanted 
wanted to play a, a clip first of all, though, from the session which you hosted alongside our Matt Alagaya, Tyler, with Thomas Lintner, of course. You may need to contextualise this slightly for our listeners because the clip we're going to hear starts with some sausage, Tyler. Set up the session before we set up the sausage. <laughs> what was the idea here? Obviously, a venerable title, a really brilliant CEO in his prime. Tell us a bit about why you wanted to sort of kick off the session with this chat in particular. Well, it's just, it's, it's a great analogy that he's made. And of course, the Frankfurt Allgemeine is Germany's newspaper of record launched in 1949 after the war and is very interesting because it is run by a foundation. The foundation's sole mission is to sustain that paper and make sure that there is a climate for them to, to publish. That is what he has to deliver as the Geschäftsführer, as the managing director. So, of course, here is a CEO who's out on the road a lot talking up his brand. And a couple of years ago, I was at one of his speeches in Germany, and he talked about the business saying that, I look at Google, he said, as really the mustard. It's kind of sort of spread everywhere. But he said, I see ourselves. He goes, I see publishers. He goes, we're the sausage. And, you know, without a sausage to dip in the mustard, they really don't have much of a business. Here's Thomas Lindner speaking to you, Tyler, and our business editor, Matt Alagaya, at the Monocle Media Summit. The story with the mustard and the sausages it's about three years old. I know that Tyler really liked it. I think you even gave me a call or sent me an email or something asking me, did you really mean that? And the idea behind the sausages and the mustard was, I made a comparison that we are the sausages and Google is a mustard. The idea behind it was that Google is really happy if we hand out our news for free because as they provide the mustard, they want as much free sausages out there as possible. I did not think it would make three years for this little comparison. Still doing the rounds. I did not find it so compelling that, but however. I think it's pretty much still the same. Still, it has changed. That saying has been three years ago. And what happened in these three years is that uh, I think Google made a little... I think I perceive a change of attitude working with Google because they clearly say we organize the searches and we need people who use the searches who are our clients and we sell them quite some advertising when they do the searches but we also need people who provide the news that's us that's the television shows that's the newspapers it's the magazines so they need us in their little ecosystem to provide all the information google needs to generate all the searches so their idea of this ecosystem has I think, indeed changed in the last three years. As a consequence, they have put more effort in working with us and, and, and supporting us. In us, I mean news organizations. And of course, we were very suspicious at the very beginning whether they really meant it or if it, just, if it was just some kind of a little fire that need to be burned down because they got under such mu so much pressure from Brussels. But, you know, it's been three years. We've done a lot of projects. They've introduced a couple of products that really help us. So, I mean, it would be too arrogant to say there's no evidence at all that they really mean it. So I think some things has, have changed, even though I would still, the comparison with the, the line with the mustard and the sausages still works because the ecosystem is built on that. And Thomas, when you look at the, the media landscape out there and look at your competitors in, in Germany and, and across Europe and across the world, do you think some newspapers maybe reacted too quickly to digital and, and went into it without knowing exactly how they were going to make money from it and now have had to row back a little bit? I mean, you were you know, a little bit slow to do all of that stuff, to put up a paywall, etc. Do you think some people were a bit too speedy? Well, I'm not telling the story why we were too slow because that's going to take too long, but there's nothing like acting too swiftly. It, it's just more expensive. In my career, what I've worked on so far, we've done, done numerous projects where we 
just tried things too early. We developed some hardware before the iPad came, which was supposed some kind of iPad, and we completely failed, and we made a fool out of ourselves, and it cost us like a couple hundred thousand euro. Before Flipboard came out, we, we were experimenting with liquid articles, you know, that change their shape when they, when they are being played on different platforms and different devices. And we programmed and programmed and spent money and spent money, and half a year later, Flipboard came, and they, they just did it, and it was much better than what we ever developed. I think you can't be too early. It's just very expensive. You need the resources and you need the skills and you have to be able to invest them. And if it's a good idea, someone's going to come up from the big players like Adobe or whoever starts working with it, and they will provide an industry solution for much less money. For Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, I mean, we are a little newspaper, uh, and, and so I always think it does not really hurt us if we wait a little bit. I've hardly seen any chances being gone just because we were like three or four months or half a year later than someone else. I mean, we are very conservative. It's a conservative newspaper. We are that rather slow than quick. The people who work there kind of like that. This magic, magic picture in front of the paper, it's only 10 years old, and it took the uh, editors seven years to decide to put a picture on the front page. If we're talking slow, I mean... No exaggeration on this side of the table. Many people are probably here and are very familiar with how uh, organizations in the English language world with newspapers work. Yours is a rather peculiar and interesting setup. And maybe, I don't want you to do a, a full day in the life of the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, but maybe just let people know how you're structured as a newspaper. Because people often talk about church and state, but there is something sort of other planetary about uh, the way your paper functions. I wonder why you ask me that, because no one's going to copy that. <laughs> yes, it's, it's really peculiar. I'm the CEO of Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung. I've got a COO, so two guys who run the business side, and then we have four editors-in-chief who are publishers, who call themselves publishers, Herausgeber in, in, in German. They run each one part of the newspaper, so they treat their part basically as their own newspaper, which sometimes means that there are contradictions within the newspaper, so politics, rights, Greece has to be kept within the European Union for any price, and the economic guy says, well, we should really think about a regulated way to get them out of the European Union. It's an interesting product that's being created by this bizarre governance. I mean, you said there that no one would want to copy it, but what are the advantages of having that model? I mean, presumably because you have so much consensus building, it actually ends up being a quite an interesting product. To understand that, we have to dig a little bit into history. I mean, the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung was founded in 1949, so four years after the end of the World War II, and it was funded by a group of journalists and some wealthy Germans who wanted to have a newspaper for the German elite that fights for democracy and a free economy. The way they set up the organization was to prevent it as, as much as possible from influence from the outside. I, as a CEO, I can cut their budget, but I cannot tell them in any way what to do. So they have the total freedom to decide what they do with the newspaper, within the newspaper. There's no economic pressure on them, and they are all equally important, so there's not one person you can influence from the outside. You would have to influence four people from the outside, and that just doesn't work. It does offer up a degree of freedom, but at a time, you know, obviously you're there and responsible for the bottom line. I mean, actually, who do you report to then? I mean, is there, when you talk about these families that were there in, in 49 who got behind it, what does the, the shareholder structure look like? If someone said, okay, let's open up the annual report, what does that look like for the paper then? I report to a board. And that board reports to another board, and 
that is the board of a foundation. So basically, FAZ is owned by a foundation. The only reason of the foundation is actually to publish FAZ. So my task is to be successful with a digital transformation of FAZ. And the idea is, if we don't make it, then uh, we're going to probably see the end of FAZ at some point. So it's really complicated because FAZ is a small organization. We are 850 people, 400 in the editorial teams and 350 on the business side. So it's a rather small company and the governance is by far too complicated for such a small organization. But that's just the way it is. You're selling off, obviously, a few, a few regional newspapers, but you've also, during your tenure, introduced a few new formats. The FAZ Woche, which is a weekly, and Metropole, which is an economics magazine. Is it still possible to, to innovate within print as you've done there? And it, are these successful experiments? It's tough. I think a newspaper like this, like the, the newspaper like we do, is, it's really hard to renew this newspaper, to find new targets group for the newspaper, because the spread is just too big. The subscribers like the newspaper the way it is, and the young readers, they just don't know what to do with it. So I believe that the newspaper in the format we see today is kind of a... You can modernize it, you can give it a new layout, you can do a couple of things, but you cannot really make it a youth product in any way. So we got to leave that to the older generation. And for the younger generation, we just have to develop new formats if we want them to use our intellectual property. So we made magazines, uh, we made three or four magazines, but for us, the time of uh, making magazines is, is over. We, we only think in digital products anymore. Why we do that is because we are looking for new target groups. And for FAZ, a young reader is 30 to 35, so we are not addressing the 18-year-olds or the 20-year-olds. We are addressing people when they get into their business lives, when we start to be relevant for their personal and business performance. So we try to do it with a paper. We sell the paper. We sell it as a digital issue, and we're pretty successful, very expensive. Like a, a monthly subscription is 46 euros for a digital product. That's a quite a high price, and still we have 35,000 paying subscribers. So there is a market, but I think those readers who are, we could transfer to the digital issue, we pretty much made it. I think you can transfer about 20 to mostly 30% of your readers to a digital issue, and then, then it's pretty much over. The rest wants to stay in paper, and for the new ones, you need new products. Uh, entirely really interesting thoughts from Thomas there about the I guess, the digital experience of Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And interesting that this idea that there's a premium play for those digital customers, you know, people have long said, oh, well, of course, people won't pay and they won't pay premium rates for something that they've got used to consuming for nothing. Again, the experience there, very different. Not huge numbers, but again, you're talking still tens of thousands. And he said 46 euros a month is a lot. I mean, if that is really the numbers that they're delivering, then that's not bad. Now, that means they have to do a much bigger marketing play. They probably have to, of course, work and focus on making sure that the FODZ in its digital format is as compelling as can possibly be. And I think the one other interesting takeaway that we had from him as well was really looking at niches. And he was really talking about, you know, a, a very small site that they've delivered, which really focuses, if you want to find any quote that has anything to do with anything that's occurred in the German courts, you would be able to go and find this. And they've developed quite a sizable following within the German legal community as well. And I guess, obviously, how do they go and, of course, find more silos like that around their brand? And, of course, they're not the only newspaper company that's doing something like that, but I think they're quite unique within the German market.
Now, Tyler, you mentioned Penny Martin and Patrick Bourgoyne earlier, and we're going to hear a bit from their panel. And this was an interesting, I guess, to sort of set this panel up. It was called Beauty in the Brand, which, again, you talk about coming at things from sort of slightly out of left field. I guess some of our delegates who were there on Monday might have thought, oh, that's a maybe not the panel title that I w- was expecting. Just tell us a bit about the thinking behind that theme and the the people who were, were discussing it with Andrew Tuck. Well, I think Andrew Tuck was regretting it by the time he got up to st- on stage, going, what are we going to do with this? Uh, it was really became sort of Beauty and the Beast, and how is he going to sort of wrestle it off the stage? But the thinking there was, we put so much focus, Tom, on these media brands, which have enormous valuations around them. And of course, we're talking about the big digital players. And our starting point was, when you actually look at those companies, the logos, the design that you get on your mobile device, when you look at it on a big screen is not very exciting. I mean, Facebook is quite clunky. It could be an auto insurance company or less even. Okay, Google went through a bit of a rebrand. But again, you know, it's not that compelling and exciting. And so we wanted to get really to the core of does beauty matter? When everyone is looking, of course, for efficiencies, is there a case to be made for having a massive design department? Should design lead the experience or does it only come down to functionality and engineering? And of course, here so often, companies want to talk about the number of of engineers, the number of developers they have, et cetera, and maybe not so much about the designers, the creative directors. And so it was also, it was a good collision, I think, having someone from Pentagram, then someone who's, of course, at a title like Creative Review, and then Penny Martin, who I think is sitting in between because, of course, she has to work with her advertisers, or she calls them her supporters, and then, of course, has to work with all the creative talent as well, month in and month out. And I think she made a a very sort of compelling case to why it's important and should be more important. Uh, Well, let's uh, take a listen to this. Monocle's Angie Tuck and Sophie Grove were putting the questions. We pick up the conversation with Sophie asking Penny how she established the tone of her magazine. My job, really, when I joined in 2009, we put out our first issue, some of which are there, from in 2010, was to work out what we thought beauty was. If you had judged it by what was on the newsstand at the time, it was celebrity women, some of which were being seen in almost a pornographic state, and very little of what they thought or they, they had to say. There was the, we just had to redress the balance editorially and work out a formula so really when we started it was almost questioning everything that was in women's publishing and the representation of women both visually and textually and trying to work out that balance so I think for us the solution lay in an uncommonly integrated editorial and visual system so it wasn't really I mean in fashion everybody's working pretty much with the same rock star photographers you've got a a sort of finite set of variables for lots of different reasons some of which are set by the advertisers and some of which, you know, it's an economic system. So it was about really figuring out what we were not. So in a way, it was kind of like building up a set of ideologies rather than a set of stylistic styles. And I think that our style, because we work with Dutch and German graphic designers and they're, they're very unusually involved in the text, to my detriment often, <laughs> is it's not a case that we're producing a publication where there are a few star elements and then there's kind of lots of kind of hidden classified ads and sort of ugly areas of the magazine. There's an enormous amount of time put into trying to create a very coherent whole. So the issue in terms of aesthetics wasn't to represent lots of different authorships, like an aggregator really, but it's one very singular viewpoint, mine, um, and uh, <laughs> our directors, about what we think women should be. So actually it became almost like an exercise in addressing what was wrong with media. And it was very advantageous for us 
unbeknownst to us, that what was going to happen in terms of Me Too and all those different things, we'd already done the thinking in the middle of a recession when we were being told you shouldn't launch a luxury women's magazine anyway. And in a way, I feel like we're ahead of some of the thinking, not because we're so bright, but we were extremely lucky and we were up against it when we started. Maybe I could just quickly jump in to ask Patrick a follow-up. You know, we're talking here about something interesting, which is we do a thing in office every month where, which is called The Flip, and it's not a dance move that I've managed to muster. But it's a thing where when we finish the issue, we go on to a page turn and we can see where every single ad is placed next to editorial. Does it look good? Is it in the right place? Does the editorial image clash with what's in the advertising? We want to make it a beautiful product when you pick up and you turn all those pages. Do you think that that world of the great campaign still succeeds though? Because then strangely, you can go online on a, on a great newspaper, maybe like the New York Times, I was reading Awfully There, which is not an advert that would appear in our magazine. There was a, one of the, the terrorist attacks about the truck uh, coming across London Bridge served programmatically into the middle of the editorial was advertising for renting vans that weekend. So they'd seen it was a story about people who had rented vans, and they'd inserted lots of nice programmatic ads for renting vans. Now, that's the complete other end of the stage, and we're talking here about beauty. Do you think that brands have just stopped caring about that kind of notion of beauty, and that we've just got into a world of like a little bit more looseness, and what happens to our brand when it goes out there, we don't really care? No, I don't think so. And I think certainly when it comes to digital media, advertising and digital media, there's been a lot of resistance from the big, big advertisers like P&G and Unilever all the way down to what's happening to their brands when they're out there and what kind of content they're being served against, context they've been served against, who's seeing them, all those kind of measurement things. It's a, you know, that's a big, big issue now that people are beginning to understand what the consequences of this lack of control have been. And I think we're going to see a lot more advertisers taking back a lot of that control. And a lot of that's due to the fact that you know, those kind of programmatic systems really don't work for anyone anyway, to a very little extent anyway. And I think for those brands where beauty, if you like, is part of, of their values and part of what, what they want to communicate, I think it's absolutely still very, very important. I mean, absolutely not. They really care. They care how it's printed. They're really proud to see where they were. They spend months talking to us about their position. I've had two brands make artwork ex explicitly for us because we didn't feel the content of their advertising was correct for, you know, in our context. Maybe the sexual content we thought wasn't right and they went and made a campaign image for us. It's never been more important. And also, we know that monthly magazines advertising is going down, but you know, biannuals are going up. We've got, I think, 10% more on a, in a spring issue. You would never expect a spring issue to be expanding. Can it's you give us an example of a brand that appears maybe in your title or you've seen? So uh, when the Gucci ca campaign came out in the last few weeks, interestingly, lots of people in our office who may not be actually customers of Gucci were talking about it. It was a point of contact with the brand because they'd spent a lot of money on it and it looked amazing. They're making non-stop contact. And if you, in fact, go and meet the people from Gucci, they know they've made a rod for their own backs because they're not only making a quarterly advertising campaign, they're making unbelievable collateral for online. It's like a kind of drain that they can't fill. But as a result, it's this amazing runaway horse of creativity and it's bringing such energy to their brand. What was it? Did they 
post, was it five billion revenue over the year? I mean, they're on fire. Whether they can keep up with the generation of this content is another question, which is why they want everybody to be working with them. It's really exciting over there at the moment. Marina, do you think that brands are still making beautiful work? I think in general, we seem to be in a more divisive world because when you have Trump and Brexit and things, you have people coming out of the shell, the shell and, and thinking it's okay to be xenophobic and racist and doing you know, that kind of behavior. But then you also have the opposite. You have people caring a lot more about things and that is reflected in the things that we do. You know, people really caring about being correct in everything that they do. And then you have those who like, oh, it's fine to behave. If this guy can get away with that, then I can get away with anything. So I think we see a bit of both. Marina Willer there from Pentagram. And I should say, Tyler, if our listeners are interested in hearing more from Marina, uh, she was a subject of one of our big interviews uh, from an earlier season. So you can find that on our website, uh, iTunes, Spotify, all the rest. Penny Martin and Patrick Burgoyne also on stage, Beauty and the Brand. If we take a step back, Tyler, you, you started off our chat by talking about reflecting on this five six days later what are the key takeaways i mean we don't want to make we don't want to give our listeners advantages over those delegates that were in the room of course but what do you think the big takeaways are things that people can actually proactively engage with and use maybe deploy in their own business decisions mm. and strategic thinking for for the rest of the year and beyond even well i, I think a couple of things came up so if we look at our first session we had cnn's Halagrani, we had uh, francine lacqua from bloomberg i thought there was a an interesting discussion there and we, we shouldn't again talk away from the table but of course as ever, the interesting conversation is what happens over drinks and dinner afterwards. So we had a delegates dinner, which was very sort of lively and, and jolly. And and I think that someone like Halagrani was, you know, was very, you know, I think she probably pushed it as far as she could as someone who has, of course, editorial control or degree of editorial control over her program and said that there is this tension. And I think a lot of people felt a frustration as well by how much is the newsroom, the network also listening to likes Twitter traffic, the storm that erupts around it. So I, I would say a takeaway from that is I think people come to good brands. They're coming to those brands not because you have crowdsourced editorial, but because you have a great set of minds who are able to sift through everything. And in a 30-minute or one-hour newscast, that you're able to, to deliver a series of stories that you're not going to find on your phone. I thought the second session with Thomas Lidner, I think, really shows that paper is not dead and also that there is a business case to be made around digital with dailies. But I think there, I think the challenge that you you felt afterwards, and again, I think speaking to, to Thomas and other delegates about newspapers, is, you know, how do they insert themselves in between all, all of these big digital players? And, you know, I think this comes down to promotion and it comes down to PR, reminding people that, as he said, we have 400 journalists. That's something worth reminding. These are, especially in Germany, these are people who are well-trained. They've literally been out in the trenches. They're out there in the world. And there is a number of compelling reasons why you need to go to that brand. So I think for any of our newspaper press barons listening to this, and I do look around and, you know, yes, you know, in a country like the UK, I'm reminded to go and buy The Guardian at the weekend, but it's only because there's a supplement in it. I'm not really reminded to go and buy it because of great journalism, because of the reach that that paper might have. So I thought that was interesting. I think we've really sort of covered off, I think, the point about certainly what we heard, this discussion between beauty and brand. I thought there we we really sort of found out that programmatic's not going to be the way of the future. But I think a big advantage is if you're in a digital space, of course, you have to have engineering and you have to have 
a site which is fully functional. That's a given. But what is your point of advantage going to be? Is this a place that I want to linger and spend time? And also, if someone's peering over my shoulder, it's like, oh, what, what are you looking at? I've never seen that site. It's beautifully designed. It's a place I, I want to linger and, and spend time. And I guess the last point is we had sort of, I said, a really sort of German sausage tease by Anna Winger from the Deutschland series. Of course, Deutschland 83, Deutschland 86 coming up. There, I thought it just, it's incredible having a compelling story. And, you know, what was great about that is here is a TV series which became the most watched foreign language series on British television. Everyone's dying for it to come back. And again, I think there it's just, you know, invest obviously in good scripting and good talent. And it doesn't really matter what language you produce something in. You know, if it's a universal story that people are going to jump on, you could be on to a bit of a hit. And, you know, they've gone and sold that series in over 100 countries. That was a special edition of Midori House, looking back at one of our favourite episodes of The Stack from the year just gone. And that one was a programme we made from the Monocle Media Summit 2018. We'll have another special edition of Midori House at the same time tomorrow. 